0: How are you good kara how are you
1: it's snowing outside and i don't think that was predicted
0: oh my gosh so you must be in heaven and i would be in hell if i were there
1: yeah i missed the first big storm because i was in san jose with you at the triple a's right. and our guest today dr barbara kate
0: yeah yeah well i look <laughs> forward to being briefly in the snow next week hopefully it's still there
1: i think your husky looks more forward than you do, honestly. Yeah,
0: yeah. Except by the time this airs, everyone will be going, like, what? But all the, no, it'll be February, right? So it'll be fine. So, yes. yeah, um, our guest, our guest, we had the opportunity uh, to hear give a talk at the recent American Anthropological Association Biological Anthropology Section meeting. She was our distinguished lecturer. And so, this sausage of Science is super jazzed to so welcome Dr. Barbara King. Barbara, let me give oh. a quick introduction of of all your many, many amazing things. So how are you?
2: Oh, very well. We're also digging out of unexpected snow in Virginia. It's mostly gone, but we had, in our area, quite an unexpected snowfall over the weekend, and all various species are still coping. So we're That's good.
0: right. You guys don't get much snow. You get a lot more than we do here in Alabama. Uh, people in Alabama run around like Chicken Little when we get as much as like a half an inch. But then again, we have no infrastructure to address it. So fair (laughs) is fair. But yeah, you guys got quite a bit there.
1: Yeah, North Carolina got slammed too. And again, all these places without infrastructure just shut down. It's crazy.
0: So most of our listeners are probably already familiar with Barbara, but Just for those who are are waking up to the world of science writing and the internet, Dr. (laughs) King is Professor Emerita from the Department of Anthro at William & Mary, and she is the author of several books, including The Information Continuum, Evolution of Social Information Transfer in Monkeys, Apes, and Hominids, The Dynamic Dance, Non-Vocal Communication in African Great Apes, Evolving God, A Provocative View on the Origins of Race, has recently been reissued, and we'll be talking a little bit about that book today. Being with animals, why we are obsessed with the furry, scaly, feathered creatures who populate our world, how animals grieve, and personalities on the plate, the lives and minds of animals we eat. And I have to admit, I didn't realize you had so many, and I seriously need to catch up, because I've also been following, Barbara, year blogging for, I'm blanking out. National
2: Public Radio for six years, but no longer.
0: Oh, okay. So you aren't doing that. That's what I was thinking. I was like, is that where I've been reading NPR? So you're a popular science writer now since you retired in 2015, but you're no longer doing the blog. Okay. Well, Well, nobody
2: is doing the blog. The NPR made a big restructuring and cut out most of all of its blogs, including science blogs. So that was a sad loss for all of us.
0: Why'd they do that while we wait for Kara to rejoin us?
2: Well, lots of internal restructuring going on, and as you can attest, podcasts are now the way to go in science, and so they decided to shutter a lot of blogs. So I'm writing other outlets now and doing book reviewing, science book reviewing for NPR. I do continue with NPR in wearing that hat.
0: Okay. Well, I guess that's not actually on our list, I don't think, but it's a a good place to start because... As you note, know, Kara and I are doing this podcast, and we're both into science communication. I also blog, and Kara recently was part of the, Kara was the Allen Alda Science Outreach? Yeah,
1: I did some training with the Allen Alda Center, and then as bureaucracy goes, apparently the memorandum of understanding between the SUNY system and the Allen Alda Center fell apart. Yeah, I know. It sounds typical, but uh, I have helped co-found a science outreach nonprofit here in the capital region of New York, so. Um, oh, very cool. Yeah, it's a big part of what I do, and probably the most, I feel like the most important thing that I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I'm going to actually ask you this backwards. Um, the questions we, we always start with are origin stories. You've now moved into science writing, so I'm going to ask you backwards. I'm going to ask you how you got into science writing and what that means for you first, and then we'll get to your origin story. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yes, I always had a very strong desire to write in a broadly appealing way. Back when I was writing my dissertation on Amboseli baboon learning, this was back in the 80s, I wanted to include some case studies, some storytelling in my dissertation instead of only statistics. I wanted to just be able to put my experiences into narrative form. My committee was not as happy with this idea, and during the years that I you know, was a graduate student and a young professor, I couldn't really follow this urge. It's changed somewhat now, but at the time, Certainly, popular science communication was not considered something that would help one's tenure package. Mm-hmm. So everyone did all the things I was supposed to do. Over time, I started doing very small things, writing book reviews for local newspapers. I started writing for an online uh, literary magazine, also book reviews. And I just loved it. I loved po- translating what I was reading as technical paleoanthropology, primate behavior, animal cognition, whatever, into broader terms. And I just started doing more of it. At one point, I got a cold call from an editor at Doubleday in New York saying, wouldn't you like to write a book about the origins of religion? Mm -hmm. And I literally said to him, I think you have the wrong person. I hadn't written about that before, but he knew my work uh, having to do with learning and culture, language and intelligence and primates. And he kind of talked me into it. And that was the first book I wrote that was a crossover, trade book and science book. And I've done it ever since.
0: Wow. So this is a super, super personal question for me, because that's exactly the kind of writing uh, that attracted me to anthropology that I want to do, that I am endeavoring to do. And what I am told is that I need to build a platform. So Mm -hmm. it sounds like that's how you did that. How long did that take?
2: It took a long time. The book that I'm talking about, the Doubleday Editor's Request, came out originally in 2007. That was Evolving God. It was reissued in 2017. So I turned in my manuscript in 2006, and the very first response I got back was, and I had labored so hard to make it publicly accessible, Mm -hmm. the response was, this is technical. And I learned that, you know, I thought I had scrubbed my narrative of all of that stuff, and it was still there. So it was a long process of learning. But what I decided to do after that was just sort of bravely pitch editors and try to reach different audiences. And I started my own blog. Now, keep in mind, this was, you know, 2008, 9, 10. Blogs were really big and exciting. And I just wrote every Friday about stuff. Anthropology, animals, and I sent it around to people. Then a person I'd worked with at Wisconsin Public Radio, Steve Paulson, told me that there happened to be an opening blogging science for National Public Radio. So I had this stuff that I had done, the stuff that I referenced to you, already ready to go. And they tried me out for four weeks, and that turned into a six year gig. As the years went by, I shared my stuff more widely, and Twitter became a more active platform. And I started writing for Scientific American. I wrote for Aeon. It's just snowballed, but it did take a lot of time. It took patience, it took polishing, it took a thick skin for all the rejections that came through. You know, we tell our students all the time that revising is part of writing. Of being rejected is part of science communication, but then you have to live it, right? Then <laughs> you have to keep in mind all those times that you're told, bad idea, no thanks, try again, later, you know. But eventually the successes became somewhat more frequent than the,
1: the turned out.
0: That's really validating. I've had the same response just recently, like, this is too jargony. I'm like,
1: what? <laughs> I'd like to ask a follow-up question because mm-hmm. you hit on something, two things, actually. One, graduate students and two, writing for different audiences. So this is something that I've been trying to start with my graduate students, um, that at the beginning of anything that they're writing, they need to put on who is your audience and what is your goal with this piece, whether it be a grant or a publication or an abstract, so on and so forth. And you said that you had been writing for a number of different audiences. And I was wondering if you could take us through the process and perhaps slide in some advice for graduate students and junior faculty on how you actually figure out who that audience is and the level to which you need to write for that particular audience. So how do you define the audience and figure out Mm -hmm. how to write to them?
2: Usually I define the audience in conjunction with an editor so that I'm not doing this entirely by myself. Mm -hmm. To take compare two examples... If I'm writing for Scientific American, and I should make clear I haven't done this a lot, but I've done it multiple times, so it's more than once or twice. I realize that I'm writing for pretty much science literate people. And I can reference debates that go on in science if I explain them. I can bring in well-known science facts and build on them foundationally, and then just check with my editor back and forth. Whereas if I write for National Public Radio, I actually don't assume that same level of science literacy. And I do a different level of storytelling by example, really explaining every term. This isn't by any means because I think that NPR readers aren't intelligent, but rather that I shouldn't assume specific anthropological for science literacy in a, in, a, in a certain way. But the relationship with an editor is very important. I have worked with the same editor for years at NPR, the same editor for years at the TLS, which is a book review publication out of London, pretty much the same editors at Scientific American. And So it becomes a process of really trusting that you are a team and that you can ask those questions. Is this paragraph what you want or is that paragraph what you want? So in terms of advice, I think that really testing out ahead of time before you write a thousand words or 3000 words, you know, whoever you've pitched or has pitched you, you know, ask some explicit questions so you can nail down the, the style and the tone. The other thing I do is I'm, I've been married for 30 years to a man who is incredibly curious, intelligent, well-read and interesting, but isn't a scientist. And I read out loud to him and he can tell me, and of course I don't do this when I'm writing books. I can't read him, you know, 70,000 words, but if I am writing 1,000 to 3,000 word short pieces, I do. And he is really very good at helping me. But, you know, beyond that, hearing it out loud teaches a great deal about my voice. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that's really great advice I just recently discovered I have 15 year old boys and I just recently discovered they're literate enough to start reading the stuff I do for a popular audience but I should have read it aloud because I don't know what their internal voice sounds like and really to what extent they're paying attention to the reading versus playing Fortnite and wanting to get back to that so
1: (laughs) But no, I hear out loud. I've said it before to students, and I think people feel so awkward and embarrassed about it. It's a tough it's thing to try to get easy. people to do. You know,
2: once you do it for a while, and once you're doing it in a peer group, particularly, yeah. when I was at the AAA meetings in San Jose that you referenced at the start, I attended a really good conversation between anthropologists and journalists, and we had a roundtable. And and one thing we were talking about is, what do you do when you're writing as not only a scientist, but an activist? And that is another in which I really have to think about my audience. Because at a certain point in my career, uh, and I talked about this in San Jose, yes, I'm writing about animals. I'm writing scientifically about animal emotion, about love and grief. But I'm also writing about how we as people can interpret that science and act differently with and for animals. So I think a lot about in this piece, am I trying to describe science in a report versus in that piece, I'm trying to motivate people, have them perhaps think about animals and our relationship with animals in a different way. And I think that there is a role for both, you know, straightforward science blogging and also being pretty opinionated and making it clear that you're writing a commentary that is meant to be, intended to be, you know, out there with, with one's opinion.
0: Wonderful. Let's um, go to the beginning. Go to the beginning. and you Your thought, beginning. You were enough <laughs> <trying> to, <laughs> to share some of this in your talk, and I'd love to hear it again. So can you tell us your anthropological origin story, how you got interested in anthro and decided to pursue it as a career?
2: Well, what I didn't talk about it in San Jose was chemistry and calculus, because in fact, the courses I was taking in college in New Jersey were what propelled me into anthropology, because I did not get along with them. I was taking biology, chemistry, calculus, and I was not enjoying them. I wasn't doing well in them. And I started really randomly searching for something else. And I stumbled into a class that was then called Introduction to Physical Anthropology. Taught by Doug Kramer at Rutgers University. This was back in the 70s.
0: Who Taught by who?
2: Doug Kramer. He was a colleague of Adrian Zomans who worked on bonobo models for hominids Mm -hmm. in the day. I was very interested in what I learned about australopithecines and Neanderthals, but I fell madly in love with learning about primate behavior. Hmm. And suddenly bonobos and baboons became my life. I, as quickly as I could, I took a class in primate behavior taught by Dieter Stecklis, who went on to do work with mountain girls and others, and I applied for grad school. I was super lucky in working with Jane Lancaster, who was a very prominent and feminist anthropologist who taught us a lot about overturning male models of primates back in the day. And I went on to do field work in Kenya studying ambicelli baboons in learning. The first time that I understood how profoundly social primates are in a real, you know, boots on the ground way, studying natural lines. I wasn't supposed to be in Kenya, and that is what I did talk about in, in San Jose. I had been asked um, by Jane Lancaster to consider some great ape field work. And Brute Galdicus, whom we all know is a long-term field worker of orangutans invited me to consider coming to Borneo if I would get married first. I was in my young 20s. She suggested I look around the seminar room and pick someone to get married and I could come to her side if I was a married woman. I chose not to do that, but I thanked her. I then got NSF money to go work with Diane Fossey in Rwanda with gorillas. But unfortunately, the government of Rwanda at pretty much the last minute denied my entry into the country because I wasn't doing specific conservation-oriented research. So for graduate students, let me tell you, I had to... First, write an NSF and get money for gorillas and then had to go back home. I was already in Africa when I found out I couldn't go on to Rwanda, go back home and rewrite the entire NSF and get money again to go to Kenya. It turned out really, really well, but it was not a linear trajectory to get into the field and to get going. And I think that that may
1: not be unusual. You're right. Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful story as I know several students right now struggling with overcoming problems that come up in their field sites. So it's good to hear these really wonderful success stories that you can look back and see how hard it was and that you got through.
0: I also want to interject that I spent my first month at Rutgers as a grad student and I did not get funding, so I did not continue in the program, but I did have the pleasure of at least getting a month with in a class with Dieter Stecklis right before he retired. Yeah. And in that short period, he and several others affected how I think very profoundly. So it was really great when to hear you reference him. I don't hear him referenced often. It's just a nice coincidence.
2: That's great to hear. And, you know, he kind of retired like I did, meaning that he's still working. So he and Netson Stecklis are at the University of Arizona mm-hmm. teaching Fantastic courses on animal-human relationships, and they've got a whole program going. So, just a plug
0: there. That's great. I didn't know that. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So, you mentioned your book, Evolving God, that you wrote for a popular audience in 2007, and that was recently reissued. And in that book, you you talk about the role of belongingness, um, and I have it in quotes here. And I have to tell you that I use your articulation of this in my own research. I'd really love to hear you unpack this a little bit. What's the importance of belongingness for human evolution?
2: Well, I think of belongingness as just the fact that we as primates matter to each other profoundly in our groups and our families. So back when I first put this book out in 2007, uh, someone who, who writes for the media called me up and said, talk to me about what evolving God would look like if it were a movie. This wasn't because a movie producer wanted me, but just as a thought experiment. And I explained it as if we were to do a human evolution movie from belongingness, it would mean that Australopithecines weren't just depicted as bipedal striders foraging on the savannah, and Neanderthals wouldn't just be depicted as close confrontation, uh, spear throwing hunters, but rather there would be a sense of emotional life that. These are primates and people who aren't just grouped together for survival, but develop profoundly important bonds and have meaning making in these groups. And so belongingness became a kind of touchstone for me to always remember what we're really talking about in human evolution, which are groups of really smart thinking and feeling primates solving problems socially, emotionally, as well as you know, physiologically and physically. So I began to work on models that would really think about the expansion of belongingness over time through the trajectory of belief in human groups. I'm not sure how much to sort of go on with at one time, but the idea basically became for me understanding that as our brains changed and expanded, and I'm speaking about human ancestors now, there was a sense in which our circle of belongingness expanded. And we know at some point religion evolved, but religion evolved you know, in terms of an institution fairly late, 5,000, 7,000, 8,000 years ago. But there's this incredibly long trajectory in which we start thinking beyond the here and now, questions of life and death. Questions of God, gods, and spirits. And I think this was a very, very long, gradual process in which the fact that belonging is central to us plays an important role. So if you believe in spirits or you believe in God's plural, or eventually you come to believe in God, it's rooted in the fact that other beings matter to you and what they think of you and how they interact with you
1: matter to you. So I've got a question on this, Chris, unless you want to interject first.
0: No, I was just going to sort of put my question into context. I almost want to clarify my own thinking, because sometimes when I write, I never am sure if I thought of something or if I've stolen it from someone whose work I read. And I've done a little bit of both with Barbara, because the way I define spirituality is this feeling a part of something. And And I think I either... I was thinking along those lines, and when I read Evolving God, latched onto the term belongingness as being synonymous with that, or maybe Barbara articulated that in the book itself, and I'm reinventing it as my own thought. When people say they're not religious, but they're spiritual, I see it as, and my own personal experience of being somewhat reclusive at times and maybe somewhat introverted, that I I always note how magical it seems to feel and transformative it is when i am in a group of people and i feel better and i attribute that to that sense of spirituality that people Mm -hmm. describe
2: yeah you know i know a lot of people who tell me that they go to church or synagogue or wherever because of the belongingness they feel they may not believe in a certain being they may not have even a set of beliefs that we would normally gloss as religious, but that experience, the music, the ritual, all of this is deeply, deeply meaningful. And sometimes I think about that when I'm at a Springsteen concert, because one of my most you know, transcendent experiences. As a New Jersey person who has grown up with Bruce Springsteen and followed the band sometimes out of state, I feel that very, very, very strongly. I think belongingness may be religious, it may be spiritual, it may be both, it may be neither. It comes from very many different directions. Mm. Um, the work of anthropologist Augustin Fuentes has been very interesting to me in this regard. And you talk about sort of reinventing and rethinking. And Augustin and I have read each other's work. And he talks about the very long period of human imagination. So, the last 300 to 400,000 years, as he sees it, is a time when our lineage became more experimental, more innovative, and able to think with imagination differently about each other so that we became transformed in a lot of ways, in a sort of feedback loop as we began to think about all these mysterious sort of questions. And and that type of inquiry really fascinates me. And I like to tie it to, you know, burials by Neanderthal peoples, art by early Homo sapiens. and all of these things, they have a sort of, you know, almost numinous quality for me. We don't always understand exactly what's going on, but if we put it in a belongingness framework, I think we can understand more about the expansion of our circles of really moral caring that happened to include, you know, the sacred. Uh,
1: so I have a question going off belongingness. And as I was going through um, your Evolving God book, which is the first time I have. So thank you both mm-hmm. for introducing me to <laughs> this has been a nice experience for me. I couldn't help but think, and this is of course going to be within the context of the current political and national climate going Mm -hmm. on right now, that belongingness has moved well beyond the spiritual and religion, and that groups are no longer necessarily defined by religion or spiritual Mm -hmm. belief. And I'm wondering if you think, I, I, I was picking up on certain things that, you know, perhaps all this started with empathy and then moved into kind of belongingness. Is there a detrimental effect of belongingness that basically comes at the expense of empathy for other groups.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we see the flip side of belongingness being xenophobia, and very sadly, and, you know, I feel great anguish about the fact that in this country we are seeing an uprising of, it's not just intolerance, it's xenophobia, it's violence, it's white supremacy. And I think that belongingness in evolution is a double-edged sword because we know that, if you are defining belongingness as sort of in-group versus out-group, then you're going to get into, you know, a lot of these extremely difficult problems that we see now. So, yeah, that's something that I think about a lot, and certainly is tied to questions all the time when we talk about whether... You know, where is religion going? Uh, Are there benefits and costs, not just evolutionarily, but in the present? That's just a huge, huge topic. Most of my work, as I think you know, is actually not with humans, not with human groups, and not with hominid groups, but with other animals. And so what I'm really most interested in doing is trying to trace the trajectory of things like the expression of emotion and grief and love and empathy in other animals and see how that all was an evolutionary platform for what
1: came with. So, you know, sorry for sort of wrenching the question away from you, but no, you you led right into basically our next question about the, the, you know, the uh, imperative for belongingness in other animals. Would you mind kind of diving into that evidence a little bit for us?
2: Yeah, I think that the basis of what I'm doing is to try to suggest that like language evolved and technology evolved, that belongingness and religion had a long evolutionary history. And for the last six years, what I've really been working on most is understanding the scope of grief in non-human animals. And you referenced my 2013 book, and I'm also doing uh, updates in various magazine articles, and I'm doing a lot of public speaking on animal grief. So- Not related to religion right away, but just simply to say that the evidence for social animals who lose someone, a partner, a family member, a friend, grieving is increasing by the year. We knew that elephants mourn, chimpanzees mourn, cetaceans mourn. But there are so many other animals now that we're finding out uh, have evidence for this. And I'm trying to use a fairly rigorous scientific definition suggesting that we have to know what a survivor does before and after a death so that somebody may socially withdraw or sleep and eat very differently after a death and show through very visible behavior evidence of emotion. I'm not trying to read animals' minds or impute anthropomorphically to them, but rather use the visible behavior of their morning after a death to describe what could be going on. And the more that we understand that so many animals that we share the earth with are thinking and feeling animals, the better are we to understand the scope of belongingness in the world and how to use it in our evolutionary models.
0: It's one of the reasons why I I teach primatology, even though I don't actually study primates. Personally, I study humans. So sort of the opposite track. I Mm -hmm. always yeah. bring primatology into the work that I do and into the teaching. And when I was re-skimming Evolving God for this interview, it reinforced how much of it. It sounds like you've written on several different topics, but you haven't. You've been writing about animal emotions for a long, long time. And I was reminded that you were the first person I have seen who has written that young apes seem to actually teach their young, and I was wondering if you could speak to this, because I'm not sure if I'm just, as a non-primatologist, not well-read enough, or if others haven't articulated this, but my understanding was that most scholars seem to suggest apes simply learn by watching and aren't actively teaching. I
2: have to um, disentangle myself from, it, from any sort of credit for this, because I have not worked on this directly. So when I was in Kenya working with baboons, my dissertation showed that there is no teaching in monkeys, but that monkey infants are incredibly creative about finding ways to bring about opportunities to learn socially. So I did a lot of reading about teaching. And I do say in various books that there is some evidence for teaching in apes, but it is certainly not my evidence. So I think that it's fairly well accepted now that there is teaching in non-human animals in certain case studies. I think that probably it would be fair to say we've moved on from it being a sort of binary. Humans teach and and, and animals don't. For example, Christophe Bosch showed very clearly in wild chimpanzees that on rare occasions, adult chimpanzees will not only scaffold and help their youngsters learn how to crack open nuts, but will rotate a tool very, very slowly, clearly teaching a youngster how to do that. Work of Lisa Rappaport shows that golden lion tamarins will give a certain call when they're foraging inside tree holes and call the infant over who is then encouraged to reach into that tree hole and learn about the prey. And to me, that counts as teaching. There's wonderful work. I don't know if you know this, but meerkats teach There are two scholars, Thornton and McAuliffe, who show that adults bring first dead prey, then injured prey, then intact prey to meerkat kids according to their developmental stage. All of these things seem to me to meet the definition of teaching. So it's like with a lot of other questions that I work on, love, grief, empathy, communication, that depending on how we define things, and if we look and ask the right questions, we end up seeing a great deal of continuity. And I do believe teaching falls in that camp, that there's continuity there.
0: I absolutely agree. I'm, I'm really fascinated in my own work with some of the stuff Joseph Heinrich at, at Harvard has been doing in terms of whether it's vertical or horizontal transmission. And I imagine mm-hmm. when we look for it, we'll see more of that in non-humans as well.
2: It's funny because every Sunday I have for years done something on Twitter called hashtag Sunday sentence where I pick the best sentence that I have read in the past week and offer it. This is organized by another writer, not, not by me. And we all share these sentences. And for the first time last Sunday, uh, one of my sentences was picked in it. It goes something like, we, we have no hope of finding grief in turtles until we ask questions about grief in turtles, and although that's a very specific example, it speaks to your point, that I think for a long time, we as anthropologists and primatologists, you know, have been taught almost about great ape exceptionalism, if you will, a parallel to human exceptionalism, that we should find all these great things in our closest living relatives, emotion, thinking, all these things. But I think we have to be looking much, much more widely at turtles and bison and fish for Mm -hmm. things, for the negative evidence, as well as for the positive evidence. That's how you build evolutionary models. You know, ask the right questions.
1: So you have covered so much of your body of work in, you know, the short 40 minutes that we've actually been chatting. As you said before, it all builds off of one another and it all kind of comes back to your work with animals. And so we're curious, what's next for you? What project are you working on?
2: Yeah, you know, my life really has changed through this work. I eat differently. I entertain myself differently. I think a lot about the implications of the work that a whole number of scientists are doing about animal thinking and feeling. So I'm part of this wonderful cadre of people who are investigating these questions. And where I want to go next, I'm in the middle of writing another book. And it basically says, okay, look, we now understand how smart animals are and how deeply they may feel. So what do we do about it? In other words, if you're like a caring person who adopts animals and lives ethically and wants to think about how do you think about zoos? How do you think about what we should eat? How do you think about animals in laboratories? What do we all do about these things? And that, those are the questions that I'm taking up in the book that I'm writing always working on small pieces as well as longer pieces. So I've got lots of good stuff in the works for 2019. Um, articles coming out and places to go and talk.
0: Just to follow up on that really quickly, mm-hmm. I saw your tweet this morning about giraffes and in, in zoos. And I have my own sad experiences of really, really bad zoos and giraffes. But I know a lot of your work was in zoos. I wonder, do you have a, a boilerplate or a, a general feeling about that? Or I, I imagine it probably varies. I'm curious.
2: Yeah, I did work in two zoos, Oklahoma City Zoo as a young graduate student and Smithsonian's National Zoo for many years where they kindly allowed me to do a lot of filming of gorilla uh, gestural communication. And I, I do think that I am pretty much uh, moderate. Uh, the hashtag that I use a lot on Twitter, BJ King Ape, by the way, I'm always looking to interact on Twitter, is rethink zoos. Because I think the time has come to realize that there are animals who should never be in zoos, and there are zoos that should never have their doors open. Roadside zoos are a great place to start, unlicensed zoos or badly licensed zoos that shouldn't be open. I am not a zoo abolitionist across the board, but I do think that a lot of animals, elephants would be one example, you know, quite likely great apes and cetaceans, certainly another. I have become very enamored of groups like Farm Sanctuary working for rescued farm animals, We Animals and Joanne MacArthur's work for animals around the world in captivity, any number of others who are really opening my eyes to the fact that we all kind of can take our sensibilities about animals and act for them. And that's what I'm trying to do is think critically about how best to do that rather than railing against all zoos or, you know, suggesting that everybody needs to eat the same thing. I've changed what I eat. I want to think about that, but I don't want it to be prescriptive in a very, you know, universal way.
0: Makes perfect sense to me. So in terms of you then, our sort of wrap-up question, uh, we think it's important that people are moderate and have balance in their life. What do you do to maintain happy balance in your life? What do you do for fun, et cetera?
2: One thing I did for fun is I left academia, but that's probably, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I loved it for 28 years. But, you know, man, everybody listening out there, I know it's rough. It's hard to do it all. You can't do it all. And part of what I started saying is I can't do it all. But in my life now, I'm still working pretty hard. So I travel, spend lots of time with animals, both wild and domestic. I read, I read about 90 books a year, both novels and nonfiction. It's both my escape and my grounding. I I read just every day and I don't feel right or well if I don't read novels all the time. And fortunately, you know, I have a husband and an adult daughter now who both like to travel with me and we just go off and have have fun. um, And by the way, when I say spend time with animals, I don't just have to go to Yellowstone and see bison. We have a pond near us where we spend lots of time just watching you know, beavers and birds and backyard, just time outside in nature, walking, looking, relaxing.
0: What are you currently reading for fun?
2: Oh, well, I just finished the most really amazing series of books. I read Barbara Kingsolver's new book, Unsheltered. Mm-hmm. I have read a book called Washington Black, and I We'll have to look up the author. I really would like to credit her, and I don't remember her name. She's a fantastic woman writer, a woman of color. I have read the book by Ijeoma Aliu, who is not a fiction writer. So you want to talk about race? I'm reading this with my family so we can have difficult conversations about what it means to live in a white supremacist country. This is not fiction. I could go on. Just lots and lots of great stuff.
0: Love that.
1: This is great. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for being on the Sausage of Science today. This was a really wonderful conversation. Thank you.
2: I enjoyed it greatly. And I will be very much looking forward to hearing it into all the other podcasts coming up soon. So thank you.
1: Barbara gave
0: us her Twitter.
1: Yeah, can, yeah, maybe say that one more time for us.
2: Yes, B J King Ape. B-J-K-I-N-G-A-P-E.
0: And I'm Chris. You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y.
1: And I'm Kara. You can find me at Kara Akabak. You should definitely subscribe to this podcast, like it, rate it, and share it with your friends.
0: All right. Thank you, everyone. Talk to you next time.